Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the latest from the state capitol, an alarming trend in Minnesota's alcohol-related death rates, and Gopher head football coach P.J. Fleck. But first... We the jury in the above-entitled matter as to count one unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. We the jury in the above-entitled matter as to count two third-degree murder perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. We the jury in the above-entitled matter as to count three Second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk. Find the defendant guilty. All eyes were on Minnesota as the verdicts in the Derek Chauvin trial were read by Judge Peter Cahill earlier this week. I spoke with former U.S. Attorney for Minnesota Tom Heffelfinger about what the verdicts mean and what happens next. The evidence that was presented by the prosecution was compelling, almost overwhelming. And uh, I was not surprised that the verdict came back guilty. Uh, And I was also not surprised that it came back as quickly as it did. Uh, Evidence was just that strong. Uh, With that in mind, uh, it seems as though it's very likely the defense will appeal. What do you think would be uh, the most potentially successful avenues of appeal for this particular case? On some degree, the the fast verdict kind of feeds into this. Uh, I suspect that one of their bases on appeal will be Judge Cahill's uh, consistent refusal to sequester the jury, going back to the beginning of jury selection, and then that motion was renewed many times up to and including yesterday. Uh, I I think when you have a sitting congresswoman uh, in, in, in essence inciting people to take violent action if they don't like the verdict here, that uh, that's the basis. I, I there more work has to be done before Eric Nelson can make a claim based on that, but I suspect uh, he will try to get find interview the jurors and find out if there's any jurors who uh, heard about the most recent uh, police deaths, uh, the city council settlement, the congresswoman's comments, and use that as a basis for appeal for Judge Cahill's uh, decision not to sequester the jury. Is there anything that you can think of with your expertise that uh, that maybe the defense could have done differently to bolster its case? Not its case, but its defense of Derek Chauvin, I should say. No, I thought the defense did a, a, a really good job. Um, they didn't. They didn't have the uh, resources that the, that the state had here, uh, and that may be one of the reasons why they're. The two experts they put forward uh, didn't fare up very well against when compared to the experts put up by the state. But uh, Mr. Nelson did a wonderful job, on, especially on cross-examination and on use of the state's exhibits and evidence to uh, establish what he claimed, and I think he made a good case for it. 
could be reasonable doubt. Uh, the, the real problem for Mr. Nelson and Mr. Chauvin was that the evidence uh, put together by the prosecution was uh, just overwhelming. If you take a look at what uh, some political leaders are saying, as well as people from the African-American community here in, in Minnesota and throughout the country, they're saying this, this is an important first step. So I'm curious what you think the, the potential implications are moving forward uh, of this very significant uh, guilty verdict on all three counts here against former Officer Chauvin. Well, I think the observation that it's a good first step is absolutely right. Uh, we all should hope that uh, law enforcement across the country has learned from this tragedy uh, and uh, will uh, adjust their procedures, not just procedures for using chokeholds and knees and that kind of thing, but procedures for all use of force. I mean, this tragedy started when Minneapolis police sent out four officers to respond to a counterfeit bill. Uh, having four officers in uniform pulling guns over a counterfeit bill is, quite frankly, an inappropriate use of resources and an inappropriate use of a show of force. In terms of a, a legal precedent, obviously this is something um, unique in Minnesota, this particular verdict in this particular case. Do you think that that will have legal implications moving forward with cases that um, are, are similar to this one? No, the charges were, in, in every case, I, I, I can't single this one out because prosecutors look at a set of facts and then based on the set of facts, they identify the appropriate statute. What I do expect will come from this case, in combination with the Noor case, which is already scheduled for argument before the state Supreme Court, I expect there will be a, a, a fresh look at whether murder in the uh, third degree uh, is appropriate for these kinds of cases where the police have a... Uh, they know who they're targeting for their use of force. Uh, so I suspect that the court of a, that the Supreme Court will render decisions in the Noor case that may well impact this case as well and impact future cases in which prosecutors may seek to use uh, at least the murder three charge. Good information to follow up on this historic case, Tom. Anything else you wanted to add or any final thoughts you have today? I am really pleased that uh, we are not dealing with a, a, a public outcry uh, because of the work done by a conscientious jury. Um, regardless of whether they convicted him or not convicted him, this is a jury of 12 people, plus the alternates, but 12 people who made a very difficult decision based on the evidence and the law. Um, I also uh, hope that uh, police uh, learn to adjust their procedures and that we can move forward positively in the state of Minnesota. 
Thank you to my guest, former U.S. Attorney for Minnesota, Tom Heffelfinger. Up next, Bill Werner has a look at the political implications of this week's events when Minnesota Matters returns. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives. Who are we? We're your neighbors, co-workers, and friends. That's right, we live and work in the community too. Because of that, we're committed to making sure our electric services stay reliable, affordable, and safe. Throughout the state, Minnesota electric co-ops work independent of each other, but with the same goal, provide power to Minnesota. You have so many other things to worry about. Your electricity isn't one of them. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives, bringing power to the people of Minnesota. Ranger Station. Yeah, hi. I'd like to report a bear sighting in the forest. Uh-huh. One second I'm having a smoke. Next thing I know, I'm face-to-face with Smokey Bear. Wow. And he told me it only takes one spark to start a wildfire. Did you know nine out of ten wildfires are caused by humans? I had no idea. That's why Smokey's famous and you're not. If you see someone in danger of starting a wildfire, step in and make a difference. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Only you can prevent wildfires. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Political reaction to the guilty verdicts in the Derek Chauvin trial was swift and vigorous. MNN's Bill Werner recaps. Within three hours of the verdicts being read, immediately after George Floyd's family addressed the media, Governor Tim Walz in a nationally broadcast news conference said, Our work has only begun. Communities of color will not go on like this. Police officers will not go on like this. White communities in our state cannot go on like this. The only way forward is through systemic change. Walls renewed his call for lawmakers to immediately bring forward additional police reform measures, saying voters will replace legislators who hesitate. And the governor's strong words were not reserved just for lawmakers. It's time to have that conversation with your relatives. It's time to have this conversation in every corner of the state that we cannot continue the way we've been going. Shortly after the governor concluded his remarks, President Biden and Vice President Harris addressed the nation. For those nine minutes and 29 seconds, we have to listen. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Those are George Floyd's last words. We can't let those words die with him. Here's the truth about racial injustice. It is not just a black America problem or a people of color problem. It is a problem for every American. The systemic racism the Vice President just referred to, the systemic racism is a stain on our nation's soul. The President said when he met six-year-old Gianna Floyd last year at her father's funeral. I told her how brave I thought she was. And I sort of knelt down to hold her hand. I said, Daddy's looking down on you. He's so proud. He said to me then, I'll never forget it, Daddy changed the world. I told her this afternoon, Daddy did change the world. The police union, the Police Officers Federation of Minneapolis, in a statement released just after the verdict said they, quote, want to reach out to the community and still express our deep remorse for their pain as we feel it every day as well. The union went on to say, quote, There are no winners in this case, and we respect the jury's decision. We need the political pandering to stop and the race-baiting of elected officials to stop. In addition, we need to stop the divisive comments, and we all need to do better to create a Minneapolis we all love. Unquote. 
That statement from the Police Officers Federation of Minneapolis. The union had no comment when the day after ex-officer Chauvin was convicted for murdering George Floyd, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland said, Yesterday's verdict in the state criminal trial does not address potentially systemic policing issues in Minneapolis. Attorney General Garland announced the U.S. Justice Department was opening an investigation to determine whether the Minneapolis Police Department engages in a pattern or practice of unconstitutional or unlawful policing. On the Minnesota Senate floor the day after the Chauvin verdict, Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka promised hearings the following week on possible police reform measures, but stressed... I still am not saying we will definitely do uh, more police accountability this, this next four weeks. Uh, there may be something. I'm not saying we will not. Uh, I just know that we have to pass the, the budget bills. Gazelka said last July the legislature passed the most comprehensive police accountability bill he can remember. And at the Derek Chauvin trial... As we watched the verdict, I don't think anybody can say that justice wasn't served. Democratic Representative Cedric Frazier from New Hope responded the community sees the Chauvin verdict as rarely found accountability, but not lasting justice. And Frazier said anyone who says that's not the case... That is someone that's not from a community. That is someone that does not have proximity to these issues. And that is someone that is truly showing you and saying that I don't really get it and I don't really care to get it. While this was by any standard a momentous week in Minnesota and national politics, with many hoping it heralds the opening of a new era, I can't end this particular chronicle without what will have to be too brief a mention of the closing of another significant chapter in Minnesota politics. I wouldn't change one minute of it. I love public service. I love politics. I love being around people. I love to engage on issues. It is a blessing to be in public life. Former Vice President and Senator Walter Mondale died this week at the age of 93. Mondale, son of a Methodist minister and a music teacher, spent his formative years in several southern Minnesota communities. In 1964, after Hubert Humphrey was elected vice president, Governor Carl Rolvog appointed Mondale to the U.S. Senate. Mondale won two subsequent U.S. Senate terms, and in 1976, Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter tapped Mondale as his vice presidential running mate. Carter lost to Ronald Reagan in 1980, but in 1984, Mondale captured the Democratic nomination for president after besting rival Colorado Senator Gary Hart. When I hear your new ideas, I'm reminded of that ad. Where's the beef? Yeah. <laughs> but in what became a defining moment of the 1984 campaign, Mondale did not do so well in a debate with President Ronald Reagan. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. Mondale ended up winning only his home state of Minnesota plus the District of Columbia. In 2002, when Senator Paul Wellstone died in a plane crash just 11 days before the election, Democrats again turned to Mondale, but he narrowly lost to Republican Norm Coleman. And in what is obviously the end of my last campaign, I want to say to Minnesotans, you always treated me decently. You always listened to me. Scott. Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. 
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The state's alcohol-related death rates have doubled since 2006. Tasha Radel has more. The new data is alarming. Joining me today to discuss the new report is lead author Colin Planelp, Senior Research Fellow at SHADAC, the State Health Access Data Assistance Center at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. Colin, let's start with some background on the study. My colleagues and I at SHADAC have been looking at the drug overdose crisis for several years now, and we decided to expand our focus recently to alcohol because that's an area of substance use that has gotten much less attention than opioids lately. Uh, And soon after we started this study, the coronavirus pandemic added the new urgency to the topic uh, because of data showing that alcohol sales in states, including Minnesota, increased substantially during 2020, and because of data showing that people were engaging in uh, increased levels of high-risk drinking behaviors in 2020, such as binge drinking and heavy drinking. So we looked at uh, rates of alcohol-related death in the U.S. and in all states, including Minnesota, uh, dating back from 2000 to 2019, but we, we focused especially on data starting around 2006 because that's when alcohol deaths nationally began to increase. And what we saw was for the United States, alcohol death rates uh, increased roughly 50% from 2006 to 2019. But here in Minnesota, we saw that increase was even more dramatic, where alcohol-involved death rates nearly doubled from 6.8 deaths per 100,000 people in 2006 to almost 13 deaths per 100,000 people in 2019. When we look at this data, is there any group that is affecting more over others, perhaps between males and females, different age groups? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So we looked at this nationally. We didn't look at this specifically for individual states because that's uh, that's a bit harder to do. But what we found was across demographic groups, almost every group we looked at saw increased uh, alcohol-involved death rate since 2006. But there certainly have been there certainly have been groups that have been more heavily affected. For instance, when we looked at groups by race and ethnicity, we found that Native American people and white people had the highest alcohol death rates, and they also saw the largest increases in their death rates. We also were surprised to find that alcohol deaths grew faster among women than for men. That was particularly surprising because historically, men have had higher alcohol death rates. When we looked across age groups, specifically for adults, we found that alcohol death rates increased for every age group we looked at except for young adults. And that likely is a factor of of alcohol deaths typically taking years to develop. So those younger adults likely are are mostly protected just by the fact of their youth and that they haven't been drinking for quite as long as uh, older adults. And finally, we also looked at alcohol deaths by levels of urbanization, so large cities, small to medium cities, and rural areas. 
Again, we saw increases across all of those, but we found that alcohol deaths were the highest and increased the most in rural areas. And that really jumped out at me. Do we have any idea why we are seeing this increase in the rural areas of the state? That's a really great question and an area that we'd like to do more research. But this is consistent with uh, other data that we see for uh, issues commonly referred to as deaths of despair. So we see that for certain types of drug overdose deaths, they are higher and increased more in rural areas. And we also see that with suicide death rates. They tend to be higher in rural areas, and they've also increased more over the past two decades. So, so there's a real uh, there's a real reason for concern among these public health topics for rural areas, and they really need more research and uh, more efforts to protect the health of people in rural areas. Well, that's going to do it for today. Thanks again to my guest, Colin Planelp, Senior Research Fellow at the Shadak Center. That's the State Health Access Data Assistance Center at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Quitting smoking or vaping can be difficult, and it can be even harder during times like these when stress is often higher. Finding healthy ways to manage that stress without nicotine is important. For Minnesota residents who are ready to quit smoking, vaping, or using smokeless tobacco, Quit Partner is ready to help. Through a family of free programs, Quit Partner offers free support like one-on-one coaching, emails and texts, educational materials, and Quit medications like patches, gum, and lozenges delivered by mail. In fact, a mix of Quit coaching and Quit medications can help double a person's chances of quitting. No matter what support a person would like to try through Quit Partner, it's always judgment-free. And now that Minnesota has raised the legal sales age for tobacco to 21, residents may be looking for quitting resources now more than ever. To learn more, visit quitpartnermn.com or call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The annual Golden Gophers spring football game is set for next weekend at TCF Bank Stadium. University officials announced last week they'd let 10,000 mask-wearing fans into the facility to watch the game in person in a socially distanced environment. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm spoke with Minnesota head coach P.J. Fleck, who says a spring game sellout has him and the team pumped up. It's incredibly exciting. You know, share the news of the football team. They're really excited about it. We're just excited to get our fans back. Uh, just get them around our football team, get that atmosphere at TCF Bank Stadium going again. Um, limited capacity, which, um, you know, we're following all the Minnesota Health Department and the CDC guidelines and still doing all that. But um, to have our tickets sell out in two hours like that just shows the urgency of our fans. Uh, to get back, to watch them go for football and uh, to see this uh, 2021 team and what they're becoming. And we're excited for our uh, our fans to be around. It's going to be, a, again, a maroon and gold game. Uh, we'll pick teams next week. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, and and we can and people that w- need the specifics on on the protocols and the safety guidelines and social distancing and mask wearing that's all on the gophersports.com uh, webpage so people can go there to to figure out uh, what they need to do to be ready to come for that game. Um, for you guys, how important will it be just to get some of these kids a chance to play in front of fans? Some of these guys have not yet. I mean, there you know, there were family there last year, but we're talking in terms of, you know, getting 10,000 in a building and and having them uh, play before a crowd. 
Yeah, I think that's really important to be able to get that experience, especially with some of the younger players we have. We do have a lot of older players on our team, too, who have played in tons of games and big-time atmospheres. Uh, and we cr- we provide that atmosphere, do everything we can in practice to create that type of the, the, the volume and the noise control and all that other stuff that we have, have that chaotic type situations in practice. But it's going to be just a lot of fun to be able to get back in front of our fans. I know our players are really excited. Uh, they're excited just to have their families to come watch them too, uh, especially as we get into the 2021 season. So really important. How has the team looked? Uh, have you been generally pleased? I know your answer is probably going to be, well, I always want to see improvement. There's always, you know, you always go home disappointed maybe in, in a certain aspect. But what? But generally, what, what's your assessment up to this point? Yeah, you know, I always used to say that, and I was taught this, and then as a head coach, you kind of figure it out. Is You know, you kind of get to spring, you're like, you can't beat anybody. When you get to training camp, you're like, oh, we're a little bit better. And then by the season, you're like, all right, we're pretty good. Kind of like how you go through a week. Starting on Sunday, oh, man, how are we going to even come close to doing this thing? And then by Thursday and Friday, you're really confident about the game plan and where you are. So uh, it, it's kind of like that. You know, right now, um, you know, I think our players are working exceptionally hard. Uh, there's a ton of competition at every single position. As I said before, there's not going to be a job that's won in spring, but it puts you in a position, in a better position to win it in fall uh, and win it in training camp. So I'm really proud of the progress our players are making. I'm really proud of the connectivity our team has. Of all the things they've been through over the last year and continue to go through, just the the connectivity. We have something called TGIF this year, togetherness, gratitude, identity, and focus. Kind of like when we were we were kids, we'd sit around the table and or sit around the TV and watch TGIF, Family Matters, and Full House, and, and the whole gamut. You know, even Dinosaurs, I think, was on there. Um, so, I mean, you had all these shows that kind of brought everybody together around a TV and uh, to watch these shows and somewhat lighthearted and and kind of escape for a while. And with everything that's going on in our world, to come in here and, and to be together and love and connect and be a family and be what society should look like uh, and, and be grateful for what we have uh, together inside this, this building, our players have definitely shown that. And we're doing everything we can to create an identity and focusing on each other and the love we have for each other is incredibly important right now. You mentioned there's competition at, at each position. That said, there's also experience, uh, like real experience at, at a lot of spots, really almost every spot. So how is that working in terms of you got guys that are returning as starters and there is competition and maybe there were some guys, you know, you know, pushing the uh, pushing playing time last year. Maybe there's new kids, uh, you know, the early enrollees, the transfers. How is that all working at, at a you know particular spot uh, across the field? Well, it has to work with this, first of all, is that our players have to be mature. Right. They have to know that we're going to it's going to take all of us. OK. And when you're sitting there going, hey, we have ones, twos and threes. I mean, at some positions, we don't. We just have a lot of players and they're all going to be ones at some point and they're going to rotate. And that's going to be our strength. So in practice, and I made this very clear to the people I talk to is there's when I say ones, it might not just be just the ones. We might be giving the guy that's going to get the third amount of reps the ones right now, too, because he's going to be with the ones at some point. And we go ones, twos, threes. We'll rotate who's one, who's two, who's three. And we'll rotate that because of the depth situation that we have, which is really a healthy uh, a healthy problem to have or a healthy situation to have or a healthy circumstance to have that we haven't had here before like this. So um, I think that's what makes spring really unique is we're able to do a, do a lot more than we ever have. We're able to be able to rotate a lot more people than we ever have at most positions, not all the positions. There's a few that we're still – developing that and might be a little more youthful in and uh, but we're getting there so uh, it's helped us tremendously as we've gone forward 
That's Golden Gopher head football coach P.J. Fleck with MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm. That's going to do it for us for this week. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.